Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It is midsummer 2021. The long evenings of the year are here on the island of Britain. The blessing for the long months of doleful weather and damp climate. Everything slows down. Lunch hours become lunch afternoons, and then evenings as people linger outside the pubs, grabbing as much of the long daylight as they can, storing it for the many, many months of the year when there is none. Well, that's the way it was before COVID. Anyway, if the weather is not cooperative, it feels like you've been robbed of something. One June, in the early 1990s, it rained on the 1st, and then it kept raining. By the time it got to the 21st of June, the bookie started offering odds on whether it would rain every single day of the month. I wrote a humorous little essay for NPR about it, mentioning Eugene, my neighbor over the garden fence, who continued to hang his laundry outside to dry, despite the reoccurring drizzle. I wondered if he thought the rain was going to stop any time soon, and then noted he believed in UFOs. Finally, on the 28th, there was no rain. The bookies cleaned up. The house always wins. And the fact that I remember this at all underscores my point that this time of year is so important to the psyche, the English psyche. I'm going to tell you a long story now, personal at first, then more political, about the recent history of this country called England. Half a century ago, precisely 50 years, I lived through my first June in England. I was coming to the end of a junior year abroad at Harris Manchester College, Oxford, a very small and comparatively recently founded part of the university. Its origins were in dissenting Christian denominations connected to those who had set up my college in America, Antioch. And like Antioch, it was not particularly well-funded. It sustained itself by hosting a lot of American kids on their years abroad. The fees we paid kept it going. We were not matriculated in the university. We were adjuncts. But we learned on the tutorial system, were able to use the Bodleian Library, attend lectures, and participate in all activities. I ended up with a circle of English friends when I joined the University Lacrosse Club. And I emphasized the word English because their country was called England. Every single one of my teammates was from around the northern city of Manchester, the only area in the country where lacrosse was played at high school level. Most of them had come through the grammar school system as scholarship students to get to Oxford. They were the first in their families to go to university. The distance from Manchester to London isn't all that far, but the chips they carried on their shoulders and the regional difference they were always quick to emphasize, particularly in the more physical moments of games being played against southern teams, was unique in intensity. England is the largest country on a modest-sized island. It shares with two other nations, and yet the difference my friends felt for those from the areas in the southeast, and especially London, a mere 200-odd miles away, was huge. In their company, I code-switched and shape-shifted, mildly mimicking their accents, for which I was severely mocked, but also began to feel myself changing, developing a deep attachment to Englishness, or what I thought Englishness was. It might have been the circumstances in which my hiatus from America began. 
the Kent State Massacre had just taken place, I had been swept up in the demonstrations and left the country vaguely not wanting to come back. In my year in Oxford, and the time bumming, literally, around Europe beforehand, I discovered what expatriates for generations have known. As you get further from your own country's problems, a weight lifts. You can enjoy life and don't have an obligation to worry about the problems of the country in which you find yourself. Also, the dollar will take you further against the native currency. Hemingway and all the other American expats in Paris before and after the war knew that. I found it out, too. But that is knowledge after the fact. I absorbed England, endured and talked about the weather, drank and actually enjoyed the beer. Didn't like the philosophy at the university, which was a problem. I was a philosophy major, but that was a small matter. Very quickly, the year came to an end. My younger brother flew over, and I took him on a final road trip around Britain. I bought an ancient Austin A30 for 20 pounds. The turn signal was a knob on the dashboard, which you turned one way, and a little wing would fly out from the support strut between the front and back doors, telling the car behind you which way you were going. Under the bonnet, hood, the engine worked, but the rest was corroded and filthy. The carburetor would jam shut while driving along the highway, and the car would slow to a crawl and then surge forward when the plate suddenly opened up. So we ended up driving back roads, and that was just fine. We headed north to Yorkshire. By then I had absorbed my friend's regional ideas and was committed to the belief that true England lay in the north. There was a place I wanted to see, Rivo's Abbey, a ruined Cistercian monastery founded in the 12th century and despoiled during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. It's in an isolated valley and is arguably the most atmospheric medieval ruin in a country littered with them. We arrived in the late afternoon, crunching along a gravel track to a car park and had the place to ourselves wandered in and out and under the surviving Gothic arches, noted the sheep grazing in the pasture surrounding the building. On the east side of the abbey, a series of pens had been built, and about twenty sheep were in them. They had various markings painted on them in different colored dyes. A single farmer was working, tugging them here and there, getting them into a smaller pen, where he was shearing their thick, dirty fleeces. We walked a bit up the eastern slope of the valley and then sat, facing west, and watched the man work, speculating on what the different colored symbols might mean. The sun fell below the high cloud, sharpening and lengthening the shadows thrown from the ruins' gothic arches and buttresses. Even after the sun was gone, the golden light lingered between the cloud and horizon, the major chord that always ends England's midsummer days. We sat for a long time in silence, watching the sheep shearing. It was very still. The only sound in the air was their bleeding. In that hour, which is summoned from my memory every year when the long days come, I think I fell in love with England. On a summer's evening, by a ruined abbey, history is now and England, to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, another American who fell in love with this place, and a poet I read a lot in those days. Two years later, drifting and dithering about applying to graduate school, I went back to England to see if I could figure out a way to live there. 
The world wasn't so bureaucratized then, and even though I had no right to work, there were ways to evade the rules. I dropped in on Ken, who had been captain of the lacrosse team at Oxford, now back north, living and working on the outskirts of Huddersfield. I spent the weekend at his home in a village in the Pennines. It was June, the long days again. On the Saturday, we wandered down to the village cricket green and watched a match, drank beer, throughout another long, golden evening, Elliot floating again through my increasingly beer-addled brain. Sunday afternoon, we walked off our hangovers on a long ramble into the countryside, stone walls and sheep, more sheep. We spoke about politics and the state of the country. It was going to the dogs, would be the summary of Ken's view. I expressed surprise and tried to remind him of the wonderful things about England. You know nothing about this country, Mike, he said, quietly but emphatically, a conversation stopper and a sentence I've never forgotten. I made it through the summer, then my money ran out, and I went back to the U.S. to work, hoping to put together enough to come back for a longer period of time. Then history intervened. The oil price shock of 1973 led to the great inflation that completely shattered an economy in which I could earn American wages for six months and save enough to live in England for a year. I put aside English dreams and failed at one career and made a beginning in a new one, journalism. Then life intervened. I met a woman and fell in love and got married. Her parents were English and had left the country after the war. She had a British passport and was keen to give London a try, and since I would have work privileges as her spouse, we moved from New York. That was 36 years ago. When I returned, England seemed to have disappeared, replaced by a country called Britain. Its prime minister was Margaret Thatcher, and she seemed to have changed the place completely. I would like to have asked my friend Ken about the changes, but he was long gone. He was a Thatcherite before Thatcher, and had left before she had taken control of the country. He was living in Canada, rising rapidly through the ranks of Johnson Matthey executives, overseeing the company's gold mining operations in the Yukon. Southern England, including London, had come to have complete dominance over the North. Margaret Thatcher, like Ronald Reagan, had come into office determined to curb Union power. She did this by provoking a fight with Britain's miners. After a year-long strike, the miners were crushed. Coal mines closed. Most of them were in the North. The economy all over the region, from the Irish Sea to the North Sea, collapsed. In early 1988, I went to Liverpool to do a story about the role of football in sustaining the place. I noted that the local paper, the Liverpool Echo, had two pages of death notices and one page of help-wanted ads. Britishness did not completely eradicate English national feeling, however. That was most publicly expressed by football hooliganism. Each nation on the island of Britain plays international football under its own flag, a violent, organized subculture, crudely xenophobic and nationalistic, marched from foreign town center to foreign town center, creating havoc while wrapped in the English flag, the cross of St. George, whenever England played. The UK had joined what was then the European community and was in the process of becoming the European Union. Thatcher was unconvinced of the politics of a more perfect union, federalism, as she called it, 
arguably the first and longest-lasting union of nations is the 1707 Act of Union between England and Scotland, which created Great Britain. No matter. Her anti-European attitude was high on the charge sheet when her own members of Parliament defenestrated her. It wasn't the primary reason, but for some Tories, it was reason enough to begin a long campaign to leave. I covered these events for NPR. As a journalist, I was not a fully matriculated member of the society, but an adjunct to it. Thatcher's replacement, John Major, was now stuck with the push for closer European Union via a new treaty being negotiated in the Dutch town of Maastricht. He gave a speech on the subject in 1993, which closed, Fifty years from now, Britain will still be the country of long shadows on county cricket grounds, warm beer, invincible green suburbs, dog lovers, and, as George Orwell said, old maids bicycling to Holy Communion through the morning mist. Major was mocked then for that idealized vision, and is still mocked for it, but I knew what he was talking about. Those long shadows had seduced me as well. But the country he was talking about wasn't Britain. It was England. When Labour's Tony Blair defeated Major by a landslide in 1997, Britishness seemed to have permanently eclipsed Englishness. Blair was ardently pro-European and internationalist. England, when the word was used outside of sport, became synonymous with small-mindedness. Anti-Europeans were called Little Englanders. In 1998, I went to the area around Sedgefield, Blair's constituency, about 40 miles north of Rivo's Abbey. Sedgefield was one of the mining communities devastated by Thatcher's war on the miners. Blair had worked with other local MPs, all labor, for years to bring in foreign investment. Several microchip manufacturing plants had been opened in the region, but the price of microchips had collapsed, and so the plants were closing. And that was the story I was doing. The air was clean, but the towns were empty. In the decade and a half since the strike, most younger people had headed south to find work. Time passed. A decade later, I became less of an adjunct presence, taking up British citizenship. Then came the crash of 2008, and in the aftermath, as with every major economic event of the last half century, even more of Britain's wealth became concentrated in and around London. Resentment grew all over the island. One of Blair's shrewdest political moves as he focused on positioning Britain for globalization was to return some local control to Scotland and Wales. Scots elected a parliament in the Welsh and Assembly, while also voting in national parliamentary elections. The English didn't get that privilege. In the first elections after the crash, the Scottish National Party became the dominant force in that country. It demanded a referendum on independence. In 2014, David Cameron, by then Prime Minister, agreed that they could hold one. At the time, Mike White, political editor of The Guardian, told me that he was less worried about the Scots voting to leave than the effect that such a vote would have on the English. You don't want to wake up English nationalism, he said. I may have argued the point. I had done some reporting recently from Teesside, not far from Sedgefield. More than one person had told me, if the Scots go, I hope they take us with them. But Mike White was right. 
The Scots voted against independence, but the genie of English nationalism was out of the bottle. It found its expression in first the Brexit vote, and then in the Tories' landslide win in the 2019 general election, by which point the Conservatives were essentially an English nationalist party. In both those votes, the northern communities most devastated by Thatcher voted for Brexit, and then the Conservatives. Even Blair's old seat, Sedgefield, went Tory for the first time since 1935. And today, English nationalism is rampant. Boris Johnson rode to power, caressing and encouraging it, and will not walk away from it now. England has ten times the population of Scotland. The votes to sustain the Tories in power, maybe forever, are in England. One long midsummer evening, I fell in love with England with an expatriate's heart. Its problems were not mine, and so I could ignore them. But now, it's different. You know nothing about this country, my friend Ken said. I was hurt by that. But over half a century later, I have learned to see it more clearly. I'm not sure I like what I see. History is now and England, wrote Eliot in Little Gidding, the last poem of the four quartets. World War II had been going on for three years. These are less heroic times. The full thought in the poem goes like this. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. And today, in 2021, on a midsummer afternoon, where the light has failed, damn the weather here, history remains now, and England. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit and please make a donation to keep the podcast coming. Thanks.